After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near uh, Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you've called us your children. We thank you that you speak to us in love, that you shape our minds and our hearts and open our eyes to see the truth of who you are and the truth about your son, Jesus. It is in trust in him that we gather together today and we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to take these words and apply them to each one of our individual lives, that we could uh, walk away from hearing uh, your word as changed people and with deeper confidence in your goodness, in your faithfulness, and in your love. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's say we're talking about the the topic of joy, true joy, and last week during our staff meeting, our staff, two weeks before every sermon, will look at the passage we're going to study together and talk about it. And I had told the staff that, you know, well, this sermon is going to be about joy. And Pastor John made the observation, he said, you know, it's kind of strange that, you know, I'd just been through a time of grief, losing my father. Last week we had a sermon about death. And then here we are having a sermon about joy. That's kind of strange. And, you know, I hadn't even realized that. But Jesse Clausen, she's our women's discipleship lead, uh, pointed out that there's a strange relationship between sorrow and true, deep, abiding joy. Uh, She said sorrow and joy are not mutually exclusive. And actually we see that in the Bible. Jesus, the Bible says, is both a man of sorrows And he was anointed with the oil of joy more than all of his brothers. So Jesus is both the saddest and the happiest person that ever lived somehow. So it's not a contradiction having a sermon last week about the good death and a sermon this week on true joy. And I think that the question of joy, what is joy? You know, where does joy come from? How do I have joy in my life? Is one of the most significant questions that many of us are asking and The main point that I'd like to make this morning is that joy is a virtue. 
many of us think of joy as something that if everything goes right in my life, then I'll have joy. It comes from the outside. And the Bible tells us that joy is a matter of character. Joy is a matter of character. It's not dependent on our circumstances. And so it's, uh, you know, it's just like, you know, over a lifetime, Jesus teaches us to love people in every circumstance to be able to love or to have wisdom. You know, wisdom is something you learn over a lifetime and to find in any circumstance you kind of are able to make the right judgments. That's what wisdom is. Joy is like that. It is, joy is a process of spiritual maturity. And one of the things that strikes me about this passage is about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, he's kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets. And he's come, God has appointed him to announce the coming of the Messiah. And, you know, I would imagine that, uh, I would think that what would be important to God about a prophet is not so much the prophet's personal emotional life, but the prophet's message. But John says here in, in uh, verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And you might wonder, on the grand scale of things, why does John, this one guy who lived 2,000 years ago, why does his joy matter? In the grand scheme of, scale, scheme of things, why does your joy matter? You're just one person out of these billions of people on this planet. The Lord cares deeply that all of his children come to know the virtue of joy. And uh, that's not that we would get everything that we would want in our life, but that we would have a baseline contentment, a satisfaction I would even say a cheerfulness because of who God is. Our Lord, want, our Father wants to ha us to have that as his children. And so our question this morning is how is that virtue of joy, joy formed in us? And I want to highlight three ingredients from this passage that go into, you know, how do you have a life that, you're, you know, some lives are on a path that over the decades, wisdom is formed in that life. How, do, how are we on a path so that joy is formed over the decades. Deep joy. Well, three things. We need a worldview of joy. We need the humility of joy. And we need the source of joy. Three things. The, the worldview of joy is, really speaks to our mind. The humility of joy speaks to our heart. And the source of joy that speaks to our soul, speaks to us at a spiritual level. And I just think all three of these elements are, are essential. So, Three things this morning. How is the virtue of joy formed in us? First, the worldview of joy. And by worldview, uh, what I mean is that all peoples and all cultures around the world throughout history have always had certain lenses by which they kind of interpret it. They look through to, in order to uh, interpret the world around them. You know, how do they understand themselves? How do they understand the universe? How do they understand all the people and all the nations? How do they understand history? And anthropologists have observed that the primary way that we form our worldviews are through stories. Or you might say through myths. Every people group always has a myth that kind of defines how that culture sees the world. And so, for example, 
the dominant myth or narrative or story in kind of a naturalistic Darwinian culture like our culture. This is kind of the, the default story is, you know, our universe is defined by mass, masses and energies and the laws of nature. And the universe came about by an accident. And actually one particular accident happened on this planet that a perfect combination of amino acids and other molecules created this amoeba many ages ago. Amoeba that was alone in the crashing waves of the ocean. And that amoeba, by all, you know, against all odds, multiplied and became two amoebas. And, and even those two amoebas, again, by another miracle, multiplied again and, we, and became many more, more generations of amoebas that finally learned, found fins and found skeletons and found legs to make it onto land and grew up to become the ruler and king of the earth, humans. It's a grand narrative. This story, that story, has all the marks of an epic myth to it. And by calling it a myth, I'm not saying anything about whether it's true or false. I'm just saying this is a story. We think that primitive peoples believed in stories and we believed in science. Our science is a story. That's how we tell the story. But it's a story that says there was no meaning in the beginning. There will be no meaning in the end. And in the meantime, life evolves by the strong eating the weak and the beautiful getting lots of mates. And if you are going to have any meaning in your life, the only way you're going to have meaning in your life is if you create it yourself because there's no meaning out there. That's the default worldview of our culture. Now, it's not only that the Bible says that that worldview is wrong, but we have to be kidding ourselves if we don't think that there's not a corollary between that lens by which we see the world and the epidemic that we have in our culture of hopelessness and emptiness and loneliness and isolation. It goes with our worldview. We don't have joy because we don't have a worldview of joy. The people in this passage that we just read believe themselves to be living in a very different story than the one I just told you. And you can see that in verse 22 where it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now most of you when you read that you say, oh, this is a bunch of religious people who are going out to the river to get baptized. But uh, the Old Testament, in the Old Testament it said that there was coming this time in history where God would come and do this great act where he was going to transform humanity, all of humanity. And one of the places where it describes that transformation is in Ezekiel 36. And this is the way Ezekiel says it. Well, the Lord says it in Ezekiel. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And so when all these people are going out to get baptized, what they were saying is we believe Ezekiel 36 is now. The time in history is now. And the Old Testament always had this pattern about when God acted in history, 
It was through the waters, right? You know, when God created the world, and you know, there were all the waters in the creation story and the land, the waters parted and the land came up. Or the story of Noah. You know, Noah survived through the flood of the, of the waters that came upon the earth. Or when Israel came out of Egypt, they were slaves in Egypt and they came out and the waters of the Red Sea were parted and they went through the waters. And then when they went into the promised land, the waters of the Jordan parted and they went through the waters in, into the Jordan. These great events in history, when God acts, are through water. And so when all these people are going out to John the Baptist and to Jesus, they had this whole vision of the story of the world in their minds that the next great chapter in the story is happening now. By the way, when we're all baptized here, the next, uh, a next great chapter in the story is beginning. God is acting. And their worldview in this passage didn't say that this world here is a meaningless accident. But God made this world and he made you and he made me because he's good and he's loving. And this world is ultimately not about the strong and the beautiful conquering all the weak around them. It's a story about God saving the weak by his grace. This is a worldview, that worldview that God saves the weak by his grace. That God has had purpose from the beginning to the end and is working all things according to his purpose. That is a worldview that at its heart is charged with joy and hope. And you see, like, okay, you know, the atheist says, on the surface you look at the world and you think that it has meaning. You know, the trees are beautiful and we have relationships and we have love and we tell stories. And we think on the surface that there's meaning, but if you get down to the cold, hard facts, the cold, hard facts will tell you we're just bags of juices and gases that are, think that we have meaning, but, you know, the eventually the sun will become extinguished and it will, this will just be a cold rock again and there will be no meaning in the end. The Christian says just the opposite. Christian says, you know, on the surface, everything looks meaningless. You know, there's all this violence and injustice and suffering. And it seems like there's no God or any order to what's happening. But deep down, the deep truth is that under it all, there's a wise and good and loving God who is orchestrating all things according to his purpose. And he's even entered into the story and walked among us and spoken to us in his love. The deep truth is hope and joy and love. You cannot have joy unless you have a worldview of joy first. Now the thing about a worldview is that it takes time for a worldview to work its way into every part of our lives. You can't just say, you know, I believe the Bible. And just because you believe the Bible, all of a sudden, all that worldview is permeated into every corner of your, your family and your work and the way you think and your emotional life and your relationships. Um, how does a worldview of joy begin to work itself into all those corners? Well, I think there's one good example in this passage. I love in verse 25 where it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And that word discussion might, is probably better translated a debate. There was a dispute and they were having a debate about baptism. What is the meaning of baptism? And they had different opinions about it. And I can only say that if you want to have a worldview of joy to touch every part of your life, you need to be willing to join the debate. That's part of what being a Christian is about. In some ways, that's what our church is. Right? We're a, people, a group of people that God gathered together and he gave us this big, fat, complicated book and stuck it in the middle of us. And he says, now I want you to have a joyful, open-minded, generous, 
debate, but vigorous debate. And be committed to the Bible. You need to believe this is the word of God, but don't take yourself too seriously. And be willing to learn from anyone. And that is a lot of what we actually do in our community, right? We come here on Sunday mornings and we hear an exposition of the text. And, you know, hopefully we talk about it after, you know, <laughs> over lunch. We have home groups where people get together in homes and they talk about the text. We have a women's Bible study, you know, where they were studying through Leviticus last year. And they're debating about the meaning of the sacrifices in the Old Testament and the clean and unclean laws. What does it mean? What's it about? They're trying to hash it out. We have a school, Trinity Classical School. That's one of the main things that happens in the school is... Kids learning to debate what's the world about, who is God, what is the truth. We have discipleship groups. And, you know, N.T. Wright, who's a, a New Testament scholar, says the things in the ancient world, the kind of group of people that was most like the church. There is nothing really exactly like the church in the ancient world, but probably the closest thing was the philosophical schools where people went to debate and hash out the truth. The Christians were bookish people. Um, and there's hardly anything that I love more that gives me more joy than to debate the truth in love with an open mind and gladly admitting when I've been proven wrong. So the first ingredient in a life of joy is a worldview of joy, a mind that has been enriched by the story of God's grace to the weak and means joining the discussion, the great church throughout the ages and throughout all the nations that is having that great discussion, that great debate about what is the truth and who is God. But I know that for some of you, when you hear the word debate, it doesn't uh, make you sing of joy. Uh, you know, if you've ever seen me debating, you might be surprised about my voice getting louder. And, you know, as I mercilessly slay people with my logical ninja skills and... And I, uh, you might find that a turnoff. You might find debating a turnoff. And I'll admit that uh, debating Christians can be obnoxious. We can be overly dogmatic or we can be arrogant. We cannot listen to other people's point of view. And none of those things really convey joy. And, uh, and so that is why a worldview of joy has to be paired with a second ingredient, which is the humility of joy. You know, a worldview of joy and a humility of joy. And in John the Baptist, we see that humility and joy are almost two sides of the same coin. I mean, every line of what John says in these verses is self-demotion. I am not the man. I am not the important one. And um, I want to just observe a few things from this passage about what a joyful, humble heart sounds like few things. First, a joyful, humble heart says, I am not in control. I am not in control of this world. And you see that in verse 27 where John answered, it says, John answered, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. A, per, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And what commentators would say is what John's meaning here was particularly about his role. Uh, John had come. He was not the important one. Jesus was the important one. He was here to tell other people about Jesus. It was a secondary role. And uh, God's control of all things that I, means that I receive my role in life as given by God. 
It's a statement about contentment. Humility says, everything about my life has been carefully given from heaven. I didn't create my personality, my gifts, my success, my relationships, my opportunities in life. Everything was a gift. Also, all my sorrows, all my disappointments were carefully given from heaven. It's a part of the Christian life. It's a part of joy to learn, to receive all of that came by God's appointment. And the first step of joy is accepting that this is God's world that is not my world. And often how we approach joy is we say, I have all these desires, and I need to make the world around me conform to my desires. The virtue of joy does just the opposite. It says my, my desires need to be formed and changed into accord to what God is doing in the world and what God's purposes in the world are. I'm the one, it's not the world that needs to change. I'm the one that needs to change. So first, the humble heart says, I'm not in control and this is not my world. Second thing a joyful, humble heart says is, I am not the Christ. Verse 28, John the Baptist says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. Now this is a lesson that's especially important for anyone who's any, in any kind of ministry whether you're a pastor, whether you're a home group leader, you're a church staff, or you're a teacher, or if you're just simply a Christian who is involved in someone's life, caring for it, loving other people who are going through things, John the Baptist is saying to his disciples, I am not the Christ. I am not your Savior. Don't look to me. There is nothing that will destroy joy in your life more than thinking you are someone's Savior. Who are the people in your life that you think it is your job to save them? Who are the people in your life that you think it is your job to save them? It could be a longtime friend. It could be someone here at church or in your home group. It could be one of your children. It could be your parents. It could be a sibling. I can almost guarantee those relationships are the source of the greatest stress, fear, and anxiety in your life. I'm just giving you permission to say this to your soul right now. I am not the Christ. I don't want to be the Christ. God doesn't want me to be the Christ. The people in my life don't want me to be the Christ. I am not the Savior. I tell you, every time you say that to your soul, you will feel a burden relieved, <laughs> lifted from your soul. And saying you are not someone's Savior does not mean that you don't love them. You can love them without being the Christ. In fact, you know, if you're trying to change and save people, you're going to have this anxiety about you that is not really going to impact them. If you, have, if you know you're not a savior, you're going to have a levity and a joy and a hopefulness about you that God's at work and I don't know what it's going to be, and which will actually have much more impact on them than the anxious desire to be their savior. It also doesn't mean you don't grieve the challenges other people are facing. Remember what Jesse said, joy and sorrow aren't mutually exclusive. So the humble heart of joy knows I'm not in control. This is not my world. This is God's world. And I'm not the Christ. Jesus is the only one who can save people. 
And I leave that work to him. And God calls me to leave that work to him. Third thing a humble heart says is in verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying people need to become more interested in Jesus than they are in me. Humility means losing the sense of self-importance that is the worst killer of joy there is. And you know, C.S. Lewis says that the mark of humility, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. You know, some of you might think humility is about, oh, I'm so worthless, I'm such a piece of trash, I'm good for nothing, I can, you know, my life is such a waste. That doesn't have any of the sweetness of what humility has. We know that that, that is toxic, you know, uh, poison. That is not the sweet food of joy of humility. Humility is not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. It is a self-forgetfulness. Joy is never looking in on itself. Joy looks out. Its eyes are open and sees the world and sees other people and even has spiritual eyes to see God by faith. And I don't know about you, but, you know, the worst part of, you know, depression is being turned in on ourselves. It's become so self-absorbed. You know, when I'm depressed, I know my heart and my mind are turned in on me. I can't even see other people. I can't see the world around me. Which means that the surprising truth is that, you know, our darkest places in pride are really married to each other. Depression and pride are married to each other. And there's a hardly a more joyful thing than to say Jesus must increase and I must decrease. So the psych, kind of the psychology of joy is a humble, humble heart that says I'm not in control, I'm not the Christ, he must increase, I must decrease. But why does that lead to joy? Why is humility the other side of the coin of joy? Why do those two things go together? And you'll notice that both the worldview of joy, that we're living a story where God is working all things according to his purposes, uh, you know, where he is showing grace to the weak, and the humility of joy that says Jesus needs to become more important. He's the Savior. I'm not in control. Both of those things are turning our attention off of ourselves and turning our attention to another. And that leads to the last ingredient of how the virtue of joy is formed in us is the source of joy. Where is the worldview of joy and the humility of joy? Where is it turning our attention is to the source of joy. And simply put, the source of joy in our lives is love. Joy is formed in us when we have been loved. And that's why so many of us think things like, you know, if I fell in love with the right person, I would have joy. That's the one thing that I knew if I had that, if I had the right companion, I, I would finally have joy. And that's not totally wrong. John the Baptist agrees that a wedding day is the thing that will make our joy complete. But it's a different wedding than the one we might have imagined. Look at those words in verse 29 again. The one who has the bride, the one who loves, is the bridegroom. That is Jesus. He's the bridegroom. We are the bride. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. When John sees all these people going to get baptized, 
What, how he, you know, his lens, his worldview says, this is the bride who has been loved by the bridegroom for ages and she has been wandering off, running away from him and now all of a sudden the bride is coming home to be embraced by the one who loves her. That's what he sees in all these people getting baptized. And we all know deep down that falling in love with another finite human and having a happy marriage will not make our joy complete. Romantic love is a great blessing, but it is a pointer to this deeper marriage. And the only source of true joy is to know that God wants to be married to you. You know, it's not a small thing for someone to say they want to be married to you. God wants to take vows and promise, I will never leave you. I will provide for you. I will cherish you. I will be faithful to you. And that's, you know, if you've been in our church, that's what baptism is. We always talk about baptism is like a wedding ring. This passage is why. All these people are going to get baptized. And John the Baptist says a wedding is happening. It's the mark that God puts on us to say, you are mine forever. And what the worldview of joy and the humility of joy are both doing is pointing us to the ultimate source of joy, which is the unfailing overflowing, never-ending love of Jesus for his bride, who is us. So the answer is simple but profound. How do you have a life that is on a path? You know, just like a life can, wisdom can be formed over years or not be formed over years. How is joy formed over years? It is formed in us when we come to know we've been loved by Jesus. He knows us and loves us. And the good news is that our Lord loves to show us that love. And it's his mission that we know it deep in our souls. Let's pray together.